0: Well, good morning, and it's good to be here with you. The one thing Washington has is my favorite color is orange, uh, so I thought you'd appreciate that. I'll try to give a little props. It's hard. I'm new to the area, so I don't totally understand this whole high school rivalry thing, but we're trying to figure it out. Um, my name is Jason. As Whitney said, I'm lead pastor at Great Oaks. Uh, I married two kids. My wife, his name is Corey. We have been married, it'll be 23 years in August. My running joke is you always get married in a double zero year if you can, because you never forget your anniversary. Super easy to remember that way. And my oldest son is a Metamora soccer player. And I'm just gonna be honest, we hate to play Washington. You guys just have a great program and it is really hard uh, and really disappointing most of the time we come over here. But uh, it is uh, good to be with you. I also want you to know I am very thankful for Dave as a friend. Uh, I am, uh, this is my first ever lead pastor gig. Um, so Great Oaks took a risk and said, hey, let's hire a guy with 20 years youth ministry experience and see what happens sometimes we run church like it's a youth group at Great Oaks, but it's great. Um, But Dave has been a huge source of encouragement uh, to me over the last 15 months and his wisdom as he shares. We meet together often. I did learn last week that Dave and I have something in common that I didn't know about. Uh, We both firmly believe and agree that the best peanut butter is crunchy peanut butter. So for all the crunch, oh, there's a resounding yes in the room. All right, I get it. I get it. So Uh, More importantly than all of that silliness, I want you to know we pray for you often at Great Oaks. I am thankful for partnership. I believe that as churches come together and realize we're allies, not competition, the kingdom of God expands everywhere. And so thank you for what you are doing to love your community and to connect them to Jesus. That's what it's about. And so thank you for that. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come this morning into your presence. Lots has happened probably in many of our lives as we've walked in here, we're dealing with kids, we've had fights with our spouses, we're rushing out the door, we're late. Our coffee wasn't just like we wanted it to be. But God, we're here. And so Lord, I pray that as we open your word today, God, that it would transform who we are. God, I pray that you'd remove distractions so we could hear from you. God, I pray that it would change the way we think. I pray that it would change the way we interact with other people. And God, for those who are here today, just trying to figure out who you are, who Jesus is, what this whole church thing is about, God, I pray that they would know that there is a God who loves them and who has incredible plans for their life. And so God, speak today as we walk through this time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Something you need to know about me is I can get very obsessed with personality profiles. I can tell you my top five strengths in strength finders. I can tell you my working genius in that. I can tell you my Myers-Briggs. It'll take me a minute, but I can come up with that one. I can also tell you I'm an Enneagram eight. So if you know anything about Enneagrams, eights have lots of unique characteristics. Um, An Enneagram, if you're unfamiliar with that, helps you identify your strengths and weaknesses of your personality based on your core motivations and values. And so here's the one paragraph synopsis about Enneagram eights. Eights are forces of nature. I don't know how I feel about that. With a strong presence and personality that value being in control. I don't love the first sentence of Enneagram 8, but it is 100% the truth. They are guarded, but caring and protective of those around them. As they mask any vulnerability with a tough, no-nonsense exterior, they may seem intimidating and confrontational. Welcome to me. I'm so glad to be here. It doesn't, the Enneagram just doesn't make you feel great about yourself all the time. Five key words that describe Enneagram 8s were assertive, which means we're confident, we're direct, we're comfortable saying what needs to be said, and we're gonna get stuff done. We're decisive, trust our gut, quick to respond. I can tell you four solutions to your problem within 30 seconds of hearing your problem, but my wife will quickly tell you she didn't want a solution in the first place, so it's not always helpful. We're protective, big hearted, and protect the people and things we care about. Our independence is important to us. We like to be autonomous. We like to believe. I will say this at least for me. I like to believe that I don't need other people, but I definitely do need other people. And we're influential. We have our own way of taking charge, influencing others, and include, and including bigger organizations. So I'll tell you this. When I was in Minneapolis working in a church, my children's ministry director said to me once, she goes, Jason, do you know that the minute you walk in the room, you are in charge of that room? It doesn't matter who's there. You are in charge of the room. I'm like, that's not true. She's like, just watch. And then four people around her were like, it's true. Right? So the last thing and probably the thing I identify the most with about Enneagram eights is we love to challenge the status quo. So take all those words, take all those concepts, put them together, and it makes total sense that I am here to talk to you today about kindness just doesn't quite fit. Like, so Dave talked last week and I appreciated this in his message that these fruits of the spirit are maturing at different rates in our lives. I'm gonna tell you the fruit of kindness on the vine of my life, it's budded but I'm not sure there's actual fruit there, right? We're, I'm working on it, the Holy Spirit is working in my life. It's not the one that comes natural. If you ask any Enneagram eight, we would tell you that Enneagram nine should be preaching on kindness They're the peacemakers. They have this thing figured out, we're just trying to catch up. All joking aside and before you start thinking that your personality profile is more important than scripture or your gifts or what the Spirit's doing, we are called as followers of Jesus to bear fruit but it doesn't happen in our own abilities. It doesn't happen in my own strength. It happens when I trust the Holy Spirit to work in my life. And I wonder, as I look around the world we live in today, if maybe kindness isn't one of the most essential fruits for anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. We live in an increasingly unkind, abrasive and direct culture. I mean, if you question that, have you tried to talk to anybody lately, friend, coworker, family member, about the presidential election that's just a year away? About their stance on the abortion ban that's going on all over our country? Have you tried to have a healthy conversation about affirmative action or education? Right, We can go at each other. We can defend our point. We can stand for what we believe. But are we being kind? When was the last time you smiled at someone at the blend just because you walked by? Maybe my conviction, when was the last time you let somebody trying to merge into traffic go in front of you? right? I don't know how much you guys drive on 116. That is a raceway. Do not get in front of me. When was the last time you waved at your neighbor as you passed him by? Said an encouraging word to a coworker when they were feeling down. See, these simple acts of kindness can define who we are, but it's beyond these simple acts. The Bible actually has some really tough teaching to say about kindness that I think might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable if we really dig into it and we really begin to live that out in our lives. Biblical author Paul says this to one of his protégés, Titus, in Titus 3, 4. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, As I prepared for this message this week, I was struck by how many times love and kindness are paired up. They often come right beside each other. They're often linked. You see, it's the love of God that motivated Jesus to go to the cross and die for his sins, but it was the kindness of God that took action and acted on those thoughts and feelings. It's the kindness of God that actually saves us. And if you're tired this morning and are like, I don't know who you are, I don't wanna listen to you, don't miss this line. You walk out of here with this line in your mind, you've got the whole sermon down, you can take a nap. I won't judge, I won't tell Dave. (laughs) Kindness is love in action towards our neighbor. Kindness is love in action towards our neighbor. And you see, according to Paul, the kindness of God is a complete act of charity not given because of anything I've done or anything you've done, but it's God's act for us. So maybe you're asking, well, that's great. I'm not God, so I don't know how to do that. What would that look like from a human perspective? I love it when the audience asks me questions like that because then I get a chance to answer them. I think we get a clear picture in a story about King David in the Old Testament. And it's an obscure story. Maybe you don't know it. It's also got, the other main character of the story has a really long name that's really hard to say. His name is Mephibosheth, right? Anybody familiar with this story? Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. It's a little bit of an obscure story. So, but it starts and it's told in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you want to read that when you go home, you can. But essentially, King David is sitting on the throne. And if you don't know King David's story, he's the second king in the history of Israel. Saul was the first king. God anoints him. God didn't want Israel to have a king. He said, they're like, no, we wanna be like everybody else. Never a good thing to say to God. We wanna be like everybody else. So he's like, fine, here's your king. Saul takes over. Saul loses his mind, tries to kill David. But the interesting story twist is David's best friend is a guy by the name of Jonathan who happens to be Saul's son. So you can imagine the stressor this puts on a relationship. You're like, hey, Jonathan, I really want to be your friend, but every time I show up at your house, your dad literally tries to kill me. I don't know how that's going to work out. Like like we were just playing the Xbox, and all of a sudden he showed up, and I'm like, what am I going to do? And so they make this pact. Jonathan at first doesn't wanna believe that his dad really wants to kill David. And so they they come up with this idea that's gonna figure out if Saul wants to kill David and they agree that they're gonna keep watch over each other. And so it becomes clear that that is Saul's intent is to end David's life. And so David has to flee, but before he leaves, he and Jonathan meet in a field and they make this pact with each other. They renew the commitment they've made and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 20, at last, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. After they make this agreement that they're always going to be there for each other, David flees. He spends much of the rest of Jonathan's life hiding in caves from Saul, who is hunting him down. And eventually, Jonathan and Saul are killed in battle. And as Mephibosheth's servant picks him up to run away and flee the attackers to get away, she drops Mephibosheth. And he ends up permanently disabled for the rest of his life. And so we pick up this story shortly after David's reign as king has begun. He's sitting on the throne, and it says this one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now it doesn't take a biblical scholar to imagine the grief that David's going through. His best friend's gone. He's been on the run for a long time from a king who wanted to end his life. But in that moment of grief, David stops and remembers the promise he'd made to Jonathan. And so he seeks to be true to that promise. So they call for a servant of Saul's to come in. And he asks him, is there anyone in Saul's family who's still alive that I can show kindness to? And the servant says, yes, Jonathan has a son. He's living outside of the city. And so David sends a group of people to go and bring Mephibosheth in. Now Mephibosheth is terrified. Why is the king bringing me to his palace? What's going to happen? The rest of my family is gone, I've got no one. And David says this as the story continues, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you would show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth realizes he has absolutely nothing to offer the king. There's no reason for David to show any kindness to Mephibosheth. He's not going to get anything back for this act of kindness. He's simply keeping a promise he made to Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And David goes on as the story ends to tell this servant who let him know about Mephibosheth, you take all the land that used to belong to Saul farm it, raise your family there, raise your kids there, give them home, Mephibosheth will live there, but he doesn't need any of the food because he will eat at my table for the rest of his life. Imagine being an outsider, being really in those days a burden on society, and the king, the one who has all power, all authority, everything going right in his life, reaches out to you and says, this is where you belong. This is where I want you to be. I think the truth of this obscure short story is that it shows us kindness is love in action towards our neighbor. If I were to ask our neighbors, our coworkers, Our friends or family members, if they see kindness in our actions, would they say that our words match how we spend our time? See, David's promise, his words to Jonathan were, I will always care for your family. It's one thing to say something, do our actions the way we invest our time, our resources, live that out. I think this story gives us just a couple things to look at that help us realize if we're doing this well or not. First of all, kindness is rooted in relationship. Kindness is rooted in relationship. There's no reason for David to be kind, but it's not simply a random act. He's generous with all that God has provided because of his promise, because of his words, back to Jonathan, who he loved like a brother. It's that relationship, that deep bond. They both took incredible risk for each other throughout their lives, they expressed genuine love, and their actions and their words matched up. You see, the kindness we show to others is rooted in our relationship with Jesus. The worst thing you can do after today's message is walk out of this room and go, you know what? I need to go try to be kind. If you do that, I'm gonna tell you what will happen. You will be really good at it for less than 24 hours. And then you'll grow tired or something will happen For me, what will happen? Someone will cut me off on my way home. And my kindness that I'm working on in my own strength will end in that moment. This is fruit that we bear. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's rooted in an understanding of the kindness that Jesus has shown to me. We're able to show kindness like David showed to Mephibosheth because of the kindness Jesus has shown us. If you're here today and you've never experienced that kindness from Jesus, please don't leave here without talking to somebody about that. It is the most important thing you will ever experience. But maybe someone else is gonna see the kindness of Jesus when we show them kindness. When I was in fourth grade, my parents divorced. And my friends didn't treat me any different, but I felt different. My dad wasn't at home to play ball with anymore. Things were different. And all of a sudden, a guy from my church, his name was Rick. Rick was a heart transplant survivor. He was an iron worker. He built bridges across the Ohio River, much like we're just anticipating to be done on 150. And he came up to my mom and he said, hey, can I pick Jason up one day a week after school? We like to show a tough exterior, of eights, but we're really sensitive on the inside. And Rick showed up every week, Thursday afternoon, and we hung out. I probably can't tell you one thing Rick taught me. I can tell you all the really cool cars Rick picked me up in. I can tell you all the really crazy things we did. Rick became my sixth grade Sunday school teacher which going into youth ministry taught me a lot. You don't ever put the staplers in the sixth grade boys' Sunday school classroom. They will shoot them at each other. (laughs) I remember Rick laughing at us. Rick became my small group leader in middle school and my small group leader in high school. Rick was the guy I went to because I knew when I needed something, Rick would be there. That's what kindness does. I couldn't ever give Rick anything back. I was a fourth grade boy. But I'm eternally thankful for what he did. Now I know here at Connect, your passion and your desire is to connect people with Jesus. But what would it look like if we allowed this fruit of kindness to mature in each and every one of our lives So that every time someone outside of Connect had an experience with someone inside of Connect, they walked away from that and said, they're so kind. How are we doing at showing kindness to people who look different than us? Who have a different life experience than us? Who believe different than us? It's easy to push people like that to the side until we have a relationship that invites them in. You see, kindness is rooted in relationships and that will change the way we invest our time, our resources and our energy. The next thing I want you to see is that kindness is fruit, not favor. Now I hinted at this above, but kindness is a fruit of the spirit. You've been reminded by that of the graphic that's behind me all morning long. Our kindness and David's kindness does not win them any favor with God. If you're kind to your neighbor, God is not gonna love you more. Also true, if you're unkind to your neighbor, God is not going to love you less. God's love is not dependent on our actions. Our ability to produce fruit, the Holy Spirit's ability to produce this fruit in our lives does not change how God feels about us. But what it does is reflect how we feel about God back to his community, back to those around us. Now, I spend a lot of time thinking about weird things. One of the weird things I've often thought about is why is this not the vegetables of the spirit? Why did Paul pick fruit, right? I mean, vegetables actually have less sugar. Vegetables are actually healthier for us. We should all eat more green vegetables. If you eat greens, you can eat as much green food as you want. Why are these not the vegetables of the Spirit? Now bear with me, some of you are farmers are gonna be like, I can tell you why. But one of the things I think is vegetables produce very quickly. Fruit does not. Do you know if you planted a coconut tree? Anybody ever thought about planting a coconut tree? Yeah, I have, me either, but I did the research. 15 to 20 years before you're going to get one coconut. 15 to 20 years of tending to that tree. Apples, depending on the variety, two to eight years. Want to open a winery? Three years from the time you put the grapevines in the ground until they produce fruit and probably not enough to actually make any wine. I know Dave really focused on strawberries last week, right? We can all tease him maybe focus on strawberries cuz they do produce quickly. 60 to 90 days, a little bit quicker. But even strawberries, you're not going to get a real harvest until years 2 through 4. It takes time. As we experience God's kindness, for the Holy Spirit to begin to produce this fruit, it took years for David to remember his promise to Jonathan and to reach out and show kindness to his son. As you think about this fruit of kindness, my question is, are we worried that God's not gonna love us if we're not kind? And so we're fighting in our own strength to develop this fruit. The spirit is at work in our lives not in simple acts of kindness like waving at your neighbor, but in changing our hearts so that we see the needs of those around us and we actually become kind people. It takes time for that fruit to grow. But would you say as you look at these fruits of the Spirit that you're maturing? That they're growing a little bit each year? Are you kinder today than you were at the end of last July? is the fruit spirit working? Lastly, kindness is sacrificial, not selfish. David had to sacrifice, gave up space at his table. He gave up his food. He gave up land to show kindness to Jonathan. He could have kept it all for himself, Maybe what kindness is going to cost us in 2023 is our busyness. You see, you can't be kind and be overworked. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think about kindness, I think, well, you know, it's really easy to just throw money at the problems around me. But money is not a relationship. It takes time to make sure my house is clean enough for you to come over and have dinner. It takes time for me to say, hey, you know what? I want to spend time with you and have a cup of coffee, have dessert, share a meal, so we can get to know each other. It takes time so that we go and invest in other people's lives, what would our lives look like if we began to look for opportunities to invest deeply in the lives of other people? Biblical scholar Christopher Wright says this about Jesus. Think of the woman who was bleeding, interrupting him on the way to an urgent medical emergency. Think about the parents bringing their children when his disciples were wanting to get on with their private lessons. Think about blind Bartimaeus who kept shouting over the crowd until Jesus stopped. Think about the Syrophoenician woman who wouldn't take no for an answer. Think of the woman who anointed his feet at a meal and scandalized the host. These were all interruptions to Jesus' day. How would we respond to those interruptions? Even in Jesus' excruciating agony on the cross, he was thinking of the needs of his mother. After his resurrection, he knew that hungry fishermen would need a good breakfast after a night at sea. Jesus was never too busy to be kind. The cultivation of this fruit in our own lives means perhaps taking some things off our plate in order that we might make time for people, it means prioritizing people over projects. It means making others my ministry. It means leaving some things undone. Showing kindness will cause us to sacrifice, and its greatest enemy might be our own selfishness. Kindness is love in action towards our neighbor. I wanna share a message from a Scottish pastor in the 1800s. And I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm gonna share his truth and his challenge to his congregation because it's scary to say words like this in 2023. So these are his words. If you don't like them, be mad at Robert Murray McShane. This is how he challenged his congregation to think about kindness. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be made branches of the true vine. You pray that to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be, must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes. You might say, objection. My money's my own. McShane says, answer. Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man Force it from me, then where should we have been? You say, objection, the poor are undeserving. McShane says, answer, Christ might have said the same thing. We are wicked rebels against my father's law. Will I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good ones. But no, he gave his life for all, even the undeserving. You may say, objection, the poor will abuse it. McShane says, Christ might have said the same with far greater truth. He knew that thousands would trample over his message and his love, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse to continue sinning, yet he gave it anyway. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely. To the vile and the poor, the thankless, the undeserving, Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It's not your money God wants, but your happiness. Remember his word. It's more blessed to give than receive. If the truth of kindness is going to grow in our lives, we have to remember this. It's about giving, not receiving. It's not about what we get in return. It's about how we act. My prayer for each of us as we go about our weeks living our regular, ordinary lives, that our friends, family members, and coworkers would see kindness ripening on the vine of our life, both in what we say and what we do. Will you pray with me? God, when we pause long enough to think about your kindness to us, we're simply amazed. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. But you reached out, you welcomed us in, you gave us a new identity, a place to belong. God, now may we as followers of your son do the same. May the people who interact with us, the people who know us best, see kindness growing in our lives in the way that we invest in our relationships, in the way that that fruit continues to blossom and bloom and grow in our lives and in our willingness to sacrifice. May kindness built in us by your spirit grow to change our entire community because of who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit.